Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor's, uh, Pastor Ron's and invite you to turn your Bible to Matthew 18. We're reading verses 1 through 4. As you turn there, let me offer a word of thanks. Thank you to those of you who in the last several years have donated appliances and automobiles to our No Walls ministry. Our No Walls ministry partnership is really important when we consider working alongside churches in our community that are different from us culturally and denominationally to meet the needs of our city. And you have been so gracious and so generous in donating appliances which we've been able to fix up and put into the homes of hundreds of our friends and neighbors around in our city through our No Walls Ministry Partnership. And we just received three cars in the last few weeks and it was such a joy on Friday to see one such woman who had been formerly incarcerated now working for one of our members in a wonderful cleaning ministry slash business, uh, giving her the ability to work and serve her family and to see the smile on her face as she was able to drive away in that car was priceless. And so thank you. Thank you for the way that you are caring for the needs of this city to help rejoice in the city, to bless the city. Let me frame my sermon this morning by telling you this story that happened this week in our household. And I've gotten Jackson's permission to tell this story. (laughs) I don't know that he understood that whole concept of getting permission. But you know, as pastor's kids, you want to make sure that you don't uh, unintentionally harm them by sharing things that uh, don't need to be shared outside of the home. Well, the the other night, the kids were, were doing some memory work. They were reciting things. And Jackson was reciting the Lord's Prayer. Uh, He was going to be presenting this to his class. And when he got to the part where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, he inadvertently changed the wording. Instead, he said, Thy kingdom come, our will be done. Well, obviously, being the pastor, I corrected him. That's actually not what it is. It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so after we corrected him, he started over and he got to that same part and he said, Thy kingdom come, our will be done. Nobody, that's that's not right. Let's keep working on it. So a few more times of saying our will be done, he finally was able to change the wording to thy will be done. He had just gotten into a little mental rut that he couldn't get out of. He had a bit of a mental block. And after he went to bed, I began to reflect on what he had said. Began to reflect on the prayer, Thy kingdom come, our will be done. And I thought to myself, you know, I think sometimes I pray that way. I I pray with my lips, Thy kingdom come, Lord. But I think in my heart, I pray more times than I care to admit, My will be done. It's like I get into a spiritual rut. And I can't seem to get out of the way of my own will. It's a spiritual block. Of course, I know that these two kingdoms cannot possibly coexist. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters or two kingdoms. You will either hate the one and love the other, or vice versa. The values of God's kingdom and my kingdom are completely incompatible. They have nothing in common. And so... To pray for God's kingdom to come is also to pray for the demise 
of my own kingdom. It really is nonsensical to say, Thy kingdom come, our will be done. And yet that's what we do. We ask God to accomplish His will in our life, and yet we find ourselves exerting our own will. And here I was, the pastor, trying to help his son say the Lord's Prayer. And here he was, unwittingly helping me learn how to live the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, that's life in the kingdom. That's how it is in God's kingdom. God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He uses children to teach adults. He did that for the disciples, and He does that for you and for me. Now, how do we see that in our passage this morning? Well, let's read on to find out. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your word to us. Because of your great love for us, you have written down through human authors all that we need to know about life in your kingdom. Instruct us through the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit this morning, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, like many of you, our family enjoyed watching the Summer Olympics. We watched with great interest. We fell in love with the women's gymnastics team as they tumbled their way to victory. We pumped our fists along with Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky as they lapped the competition and we stared in unbelief as Usain Bolt once again uh, uh, outran the, the field on the track. There was so much greatness in the Olympics. It was hard to really comprehend and appreciate it all. The comedian Bill Murray expressed it best when he tweeted, every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference. <laughs> He's right. We certainly can't truly appreciate their greatness unless we see it up against someone who is average. So often the difference of those races would be just a mere few seconds. made it difficult to appreciate just how great these athletes were. And much of the discussion towards the end of the competition began to focus on who was the greatest Olympian. And it wasn't just who was the greatest Olympic athlete in the 2016 Summer Games, but who was the greatest all-time athlete. Most agreed that it was Michael Phelps who had competed in five Olympics and had won 23 gold medals, 28 total medals as well. I read somewhere where if Michael Phelps was a country, that his 28 total medals would rank him 32nd in the all-time medal count. That's 120 years and 28 Summer Olympics. He'd be 32nd with all of his medals. We honor greatness, and rightly so. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it, to watch someone excel in their vocation or their field. In fact, we're hardwired by God to recognize 
and value greatness. It's part of who God made us to be as humans. And yet, as we'll see in our text this morning, not all greatness is equal. Not all greatness is measured the same way. Jesus would have us see that the kind of greatness that we often pursue is not the same greatness that God pursues. The way we often define greatness isn't always the way that God defines greatness. And so knowing that, what kind of greatness does God require and how do we go about securing it? Well, Jesus shows us three very important things about the greatness God desires and requires from our text. And the first thing he shows us is the illusion of greatness. When we consider the disciples' question to Jesus, it seems a little impertinent and presumptuous, doesn't it? After all, if we were to go back just one chapter to Matthew 17, we would find a trail of woeful examples of why they were anything but great. We see their lack of greatness in the way they mishandled the healing of a man's son from demon possession. We see how they lacked greatness in miscalculating the need to pay the temple tax. We see their lack of greatness in misinterpreting and misunderstanding Jesus' transfiguration. And on top of it all, Jesus predicts that one of the disciples will betray him to his enemies and he will be killed. What on earth could the disciples have been thinking to suggest that they, any of them, would have been the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's like a class of 12 students with an F average arguing about who's the smartest of them all. (laughs) And yet Jesus does not rebuke them, nor does he dismiss their question. He answers their question. He answers their question because underneath the question of greatness is a deeper question, a much more personal question. It's a question of value and importance. Lord, am I important to you? Lord, do you value me? It's the question that we wonder as well. We may not come right out and ask God if we're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or if we're valuable and important to Him, but we do wonder, don't we? I doubt that many of us question that our life in Christ begins by God's saving grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And I also doubt that many of us question that our eternal life in Christ is also a gift of God's grace alone. But I do wonder this. I do wonder if many of us struggle feeling like the Christian life is all about deserving the grace that we have been given. That it's up to us to make good on God's investment of grace into our lives. When we think this way, when we live this way, we believe that our greatness in God's eyes is tied to how well we live the Christian life. We believe that our value and our importance to God is a result of what we do for Him. I can only imagine the arguments that each of the disciples must have made to themselves trying to justify which of them were the greatest. And Matthew doesn't really give us that. But Mark and Luke tell us that these guys weren't just discussing this. They were arguing about this. I'm the greatest because I've healed more than anybody else. I'm the greatest because I've cast out more demons than any one of you. 
I'm the greatest because I've told more people about Jesus than any of you. Each of them gave their reasons for why they were great. Each one surely thought that they would be enough to make themselves valuable, to make themselves worthy. Can you hear the insecurity? Can you hear underneath the fear in what they say? You see, the illusion of greatness makes us think that we've done enough to gain God's favor. We often maintain the illusion by looking to the greatness that comes from the use of the gifts of the Spirit. We find that we can hide behind our teaching or our serving or our counseling or our evangelizing. We can convince ourselves and even others of our greatness, but it's, it's just an illusion. What's more, we are no longer using our gifts for God or for others. We find that we begin to use God's gifts simply for ourselves. We're using them to make ourselves feel valuable before God, to feel important and to feel worthy, to cover up our insecurity and our fear. I think the church in Corinth was guilty of this when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says it doesn't matter how great our gifts may be. It doesn't matter how many people may be helped by our gifts. If they are not anchored in the fruit of the Spirit, which begins with love, they are nothing. They're empty. Brothers and sisters, stop trying, stop exhausting yourselves trying to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Stop trying to justify your worth and value to the Lord. Pursuing this kind of greatness is only an illusion. So where can true greatness be found? Where is the heart of greatness? Where do we find it? Matthew says in verse 2 that Jesus called for a child to stand before the crowd, not as a prop, but as the point. Some commentators believe that the child was Peter's, given the fact that they were in his hometown of Capernaum. And with this child standing before the crowd, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us that the heart of greatness is found in the least likely place. We expect the heart of greatness to be found in one's vocation especially those who make significant contributions to our society, like medical researchers or environmentalists. But it isn't. We would expect that greatness would be found in one's knowledge, particularly those who advance our understanding of God's world, like teachers and scientists. But it isn't. We would expect that greatness might be found in one's service, especially to those who help those who can't help themselves, like a Mother Teresa. But it isn't. We might even expect that greatness might be found in one's ministry, especially those who help people understand God's truth, like 
preachers or Sunday school teachers. But it isn't. Where is the heart of greatness in the kingdom to be found? Childlike humility. Well, how so? Think about it. A child knows his or her neediness. They need help to do everything from tying their shoes to cutting their meat or to help with a math problem in their homework. They don't know any other way to be except to be needy. They are in a perpetual state of neediness and they know to look for others. But it's more than that. Not only do they know that they are needy, they are not ashamed of their neediness. It does not bother them that they are needy. In fact, there are some children who seem to relish in it, like one of my children. They think that if someone's willing to do something for me, then by all means, go right ahead and do that for me. Neediness is the world that they know. They don't have to battle the desire to be something that they're not. They know that they are needy and they're not ashamed to ask for help. Adults are a whole other story. I think that's beautifully evidenced by something that G.K. Chesterton wrote in his book, Orthodoxy. Speaking of the contrast between children and adults and even God, he writes, A child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things unchanged and always repeated. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but is never tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Do you know what our problem as adults is? Our problem is that we have forgotten how truly needy we are. We've allowed the illusion of being in control of our lives to blind us to our neediness. And what's more, when we are confronted with our neediness, we are embarrassed by it. We desperately want to prove that we are in control. We want to show people that we have all the answers. Mike Iaconelli, the founder of Youth Specialties, wrote about a retreat he took in Toronto at the Larche community. Depressed and demoralized, he was there to be inspired by the mentally and physically handicapped people that were there as well as receive godly counsel from Henry Nowell. While there, he wrote about being confronted by his own neediness. He wrote this, Finally, I accepted my brokenness. I had never come to terms with that. I knew I was broken. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I continually disappointed God, but I could never accept that part of me. It was a part of me that embarrassed me. I continually felt the need to apologize, to run from my weaknesses, to deny who I was, and concentrate on what I should be. I was broken, yes, 
but I was continually trying never to be broken again. At Larche, it became very clear to me that I had totally misunderstood the Christian faith. I came to see that it was in my brokenness, in my powerlessness, in my weakness, that Jesus was made strong. God humbled him so that he not only saw his neediness and his brokenness, but he accepted and embraced it. He, he realized that Jesus' strength was made perfect in his weakness. So how is it that this childlike humility can be considered greatness? What is its effect in our lives? Well, if we're living from a place of childlike humility, then when we teach God's Word, we will do so not so that people will think we are something. We will teach so that God's people will know and love God and think He is something. If we are serving, we will do so not so that people will make a big deal about our service. We will do so We'll do so because we want them to make a big deal about the God that we serve. If we're building community, we will invite not just those who are like us or who agree with us, but we will invite those who are different from us and who maybe challenge us. If we are practicing hospitality, we will care less for how our house may appear and care more that those we invite in feel at home. You see, the person who lives in childlike humility is unafraid and unashamed of their neediness. They embrace their neediness and as a result are free to move towards others and towards God, not away from them. They don't have to pretend or hide that they are something that they are not. They don't always have to get their way or be right. This is the heart of greatness that God calls us to embrace. Do you have that heart Do you know that kind of childlike humility? Jesus goes one step further. He not only says that the person who has childlike humility is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says that it's the only kind of person in the kingdom of heaven. So what is the path to greatness then? The pathway to greatness in the kingdom of heaven hinges on one little word in verse 3. It's the word turn. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the word turn literally means a complete change in direction. This is not the same word that we get for the word repent. But it does have the same idea of turning around, of a 180 degree turn away from sin and towards God. This word is also the word that we get the word to convert or conversion. And that's what I think he's speaking of. Jesus says that we must be converted in our belief. We must leave our old way of thinking about greatness. That our greatness is achieved by what we do for the kingdom. Jesus is saying here that our greatness is actually achieved by what the kingdom does in us and for us and through us. The humble are under no illusion about their greatness. They know, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who is able to commend their good works to God. In fact, they see their good works as filthy rags 
before a holy and righteous God. And what's more, they are trusting in the only one who can commend himself to God for his perfect life. They have put their faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. They know that sin has been defeated and that death is a vanquished foe. Their greatness is because of Christ's greatness. And they wait with great hope and expectation that God will fulfill His promises to raise them up on the last day. Is that your faith? Is that your hope? Are you trusting in your greatness today? Or are you trusting in Christ's greatness? If that's not your faith, if that's not your hope, I would love the opportunity to help lead you to that hope, to lead you to that faith. I'll be at the doors after the service is over. Pastor Ron will be over here. We would love to have that conversation with you. May God give us the grace to be childlike in our humility. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus that enables us to make much of Your greatness and less of our own. Lord, enable us and empower us to live lives that are humble towards You and humble towards others, that we may do everything that we do for Your glory and not our own, that Your kingdom may indeed be advanced in Lynchburg and around the world. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.